Hi, I'm Alyssa Wilkinson, sitting in today for Sean Illing. A few years ago, I was talking to the great director Paul Schrader, right after the release of his movie First Reformed. The movie starred Ethan Hawke as a depressed minister in a dwindling upstate New York church. Nearby, there's another church, a large congregation, led by a gregarious pastor played by Cedric Kyles, a.k.a. Cedric the Entertainer. Fretting arises from our determination to have our own way. Our Lord never worried and was never anxious. And that struck me as genius casting. In fact, when I asked Schrader about the typical evangelical service today, he compared it to a Taylor Swift concert. He didn't mean it in a bad way. He loves Taylor Swift. But I knew what he meant. There's an emotional experience you have in a stadium concert with your favorite celebrity singer that's extremely similar to what thousands or maybe millions of Americans experience every week at church in services fronted by worship bands and pastors who often behave like celebrities. And these days, the celebrity of those figures can be heightened by book deals, podcasts, recording contracts, and influencer-style social media accounts. Of course, celebrity and influence dominate our culture, whether it's artists or entertainers, TikTok stars, or billionaires with rabid fan bases. But there's a particular sort of celebrity attached to figures who loom large in religious communities. And that can lead to a particular sort of challenge when those figures misuse their platforms, mistreat their followers, and mistake charisma for spiritual maturity. I'm Alyssa Wilkinson, and this is The Gray Area. My friend Caitlin Beatty knows all about what happens when celebrity and religion collide. She spent a decade as the managing editor at the magazine Christianity Today. I worked there for a while two years ago, mostly writing about film. In the years since, we've often talked about the weird, troubling, confusing world of Christian celebrity. She's even written a book about it. It's called Celebrities for Jesus. And in it, she explores the history of Christian celebrity, why the very idea of celebrity is baked into American evangelicalism, and what it would look like to develop a different, maybe even healthier, relationship with fame. Caitlin Beatty, what is a celebrity for Jesus? Well, a celebrity for Jesus is someone who wants to use their platform and the tools of mass media to essentially make a good case for Christian faith in a watching world. It's someone who sees celebrity as a tool that can be used to reach more people for Jesus. 
So I think there's some stuff in that that is worth unpacking. One of them is the idea of celebrity versus fame, which you write about at the beginning of your book. And I think it's a distinction that I had not really thought a lot about until I read your book. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about the difference or the distinction between fame and celebrity the way that we see it today? So I think of fame as something that can come to you as a byproduct of otherwise good work in the world. It's an extrinsic good that comes not as the point of whatever you're doing in the world, but comes because people celebrate your work or your creativity or your leadership. And that kind of renown has been with us since time immemorial. It's just the case that some people kind of garner that kind of attention or following in their lifetime. Mm. Celebrity, I think of as a distinctly modern phenomenon because it is so wrapped up in the use of mass media in its various forms to project an image of oneself. I would say that the focus compared with fame is more on the person or the persona or in contemporary parlance, the personal brand. <laughs> then on the work, then on this thing that you're hoping to share with other people, it's me. I am the thing that is being offered. Mm -hmm. And that celebrity is really the point. It is the intrinsic good that is being sought and ultimately garners a kind of attachment or adoration. I mean, I don't have to tell you how strange people can act <laughs> around celebrity. So this isn't just a phenomenon that implicates particular people who are hoping to garner that kind of following. It's also their followers. It's also this kind of fascination. There's a reason we call it celebrity worship hmm. mm -hmm. that has arguably disastrous effects both in faith communities and beyond. You know, in writing about movies, for instance, it's obvious that there are different kinds of actors, right? There are actors who are sort of well-known because of the work that they do. And then there are actors who become well-known for being the brands, like you said, mm -hmm. their image, their platform, their persona. And that persona sort of takes over any, <laughs> any work they might do. You know, you're watching a particular person in that role. So that's distinct and separate from the religious context, but it's one that I think a lot of us can kind of see the difference in, right? Now I want to ask you for examples. You know, we have the difference between, I'm sorry, this is just springing to mind because I just watched her Christmas movie for Netflix, but <laughs> the difference between Lindsay Lohan, who first was famous for her performances and then became a celebrity. There's things that she brings with her, baggage, we could say, or, you know, at least associations. And she also has fans who are kind of into the persona no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. We could also think of someone like Taylor Swift who has less baggage perhaps attached to her but definitely has fans who are sort of there for whatever she does and will go out and fight for her mm -hmm. and would never hear anyone say anything bad about her. And then you have actors who are just people who you see a lot doing interesting work. <laughs> and when they show up, you're like, oh, I love Laura Linney. Mm -hmm. There's a distinction there. And I find this really helpful when we're talking about this particular religious context, because I think the first 
celebrities I encountered were within church mm. <laughs> context, <laughs> bumping into them in the hallway at a conference and just being awed, like, this is a real person who I'm briefly near, or, you know, buying all the CDs by a particular band, not because I was particularly interested in their music, but because their persona had attracted me for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So having said now why I'm interested in this, why did you find yourself writing about this topic? What is it in your background? You know, I've said that we certainly both together have worked in evangelical contexts, but why did you find yourself writing about this topic? Yeah, well, there's a professional answer and a personal answer, and of course they're intertwined, but I assume that you and I, Alyssa, grew up in similar milieu. Mm -hmm. Yes. 90s evangelicalism. Yeah. Certainly the same era and time. Mm -hmm. And so from an early age, at least in my early teenage years, the models that were given to me in evangelicalism of faithfulness and having a positive effect in the world and being on fire for God, which is <laughs> just a way of talking about being very passionate about the faith yes. in in a hostile secular culture. Or at least a presumably hostile one. Right. And we'll get into the culture war overlaying narrative that I think was a part of this. But yeah, the examples that were given to me of how to be a Christian in the world were evangelical celebrities. They were pastors of mega churches who had written books that were mega best-selling. They were pop stars who sounded like top 40 artists, mm -hmm. but were singing about modesty and purity. <laughs> there was a chart that was famous at Christian bookstores that said, if you like this band, listen to this band. But it would say, like, if you like Goo Goo Dolls, listen to Jars of Clay. <laughs> if you like Alanis Morissette, but you don't understand the lyrics of You Oughta Know. <laughs> <laughs> you might like Rebecca St. James. Rebecca St. James, who had a hit called Wait For Me that anyone who grew up in evangelical culture in the 90s knows. Yes. So pop stars, kind of international evangelists, people who are jet-setting all over the world preaching the gospel, but they were Christian celebrities who were offering kind of a model of faith. And and crucially, I think, we're seen as defending the faith or being brand ambassadors for the faith in a presumably hostile secular culture. I mean, the implication of that chart <laughs> that we both saw growing up was listening to the Goo Goo Dolls is bad. Yes. Because it's worldly, because it's not Christian, because your teens will absorb these secular anti-Christian values if they listen to Top 40 radio. Mm -hmm. So I latched on to that. I don't know that I thought as a teenager I want to be like Rebecca St. James, but I certainly assumed that to have a real impact in the world for kingdom values, it would be great to have a platform to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to my early 20s, where I'm starting out in my career and begin work at Christianity Today magazine based in the Chicago suburbs. It considers itself the evangelical flagship publication, a kind of non-denominational journalistic publication. I would end up being there for 10 years. And we should say, crucially, it was founded by Billy Graham as well, sort of a famous evangelical figure who held large crusades and 
called for people's conversion and was very, very popular for a long time and only passed away somewhat recently. So he founded Christianity Today. Certainly the biggest celebrity Christian of the last 100 years. Yes. But we can get to that. While working there, was given a much different and arguably much darker understanding of the way that celebrity works in many churches and ministries. Over the time that I was there, our staff received several tips and allegations about leaders, all of them men, whose books had been in my family's library growing up or who I had seen as the kind of Christian celebrities we might want to be like. Mm -hmm. And over time, our staff ended up reporting on allegations against these men of sexual harassment and abuse. And, you know, I just started to wonder, has celebrity corrupted? Hmm. That it is not actually a neutral tool that can just be picked up and put down. Mm -hmm. There are insidious effects to being put on a platform, to believing that you deserve to be on a platform, to believing that God has blessed you with a platform. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that actually run counter to the heart of the faith you're attempting to profess. And I would say in the wake of those stories coming out and being made public, we've seen so many more scandals involving celebrity Christian leaders. And I happen to think that celebrity is a crucial aspect of understanding where things went wrong. As I was thinking about different celebrities for Jesus, I was thinking about two categories, maybe. One I would think of as famous Christians. And then there's this other category of people who are famous and also more famous in some way because they're Christian, at least within a Christian context. So like in the first category, famous Christians, we've mentioned Billy Graham. We are going to come back to him. But someone who I thought of, for instance, was Carl Lentz. Mm -hmm. So can you just briefly describe what that story was? Carl Lentz was, for several years, the lead pastor of Hillsong, New York. This is what's happening in our world today. We are trying to get God to change an art image, and we can't figure out why our lives have no power, why the Word has no power in our lives. It's because we don't want to believe the stuff that makes us uncomfortable. Hillsong is this global church network founded in Australia in the 80s by Brian and Bobby Houston. Hillsong wanted a church in New York as a missional strategy. We need to reach the big bad city and the liberal elites in New York, like you and me, Alyssa. Mm -hmm. That's us. <laughs> so wouldn't it be good for the gospel to have a church in New York that didn't feel like a church to New Yorkers. If you want to wear a hat, wear a hat. If you want to look like you just rolled out of the club, so be it. We're just glad to have you. And Carl Lentz was young, charismatic, arguably very attractive. Mm -hmm. Certainly a man who didn't demonstrate modesty in the depth of his V-necks. <laughs> I can count on one hand the number of pictures I've seen of Carl Lentz where I don't see his pectoral muscles. Yeah, it was a big marker for the place. <laughs> <laughs> but because of his leadership at Hillsong, we had legit celebrities, people like Justin Bieber, Selena Gomez, some of the Kardashian clan coming to Hillsong, New York. Perhaps most famously, Carl Lentz was the pastor who personally ministered to pop star Justin Bieber. Justin, 
Samesies. Samesies. Carl. I, I want to. I want to get close like that wisp. Is to just. No, I, I want to get better. That's why I we all. I just want to love people more. I just want to love Carl more. You're doing a good job with that. You're so, my man. Justin, this is your second time at Hillsong Conference? Yes. According and to a great profile by Taffy Brodesser Ackner, Justin came to Carl seeking pastoral help in a time of crisis. Carl would end up baptizing Justin in like a famous athlete's pool. Mm-hmm. Then in late 2020, I have to say, not entirely surprisingly, Carl Lentz confessed to having an affair and was asked to resign from his position at Hillsong New York. The Hillsong Network is facing a major crisis across the globe involving leadership and various really concerning allegations. But Carl Lentz exemplifies a kind of Christian leader who internally Christians see as being able to offer cultural credibility and a cool factor to attract young, hip people who then could go on to also become brand ambassadors for Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so this Hillsong culture is not shy about propping up charismatic, passionate, cool-looking and sounding leaders who may not have a lot of spiritual depth or theological training, but gosh, they really look good on a stage, and people are flocking to hear them, and that is seen to work. Whether it's it's healthy, it, it at least works. And I think the whole story of Hillsong New York in particular, it's familiar in the sense that this is replicated across the country and the globe where a celebrity to people in a church is the pastor. And there's often kind of a level of distance created between the parishioner and the pastor there's this glamour and often there's this largeness to the congregation that would make it impossible for the pastor to know everybody in the congregation, but we all are kind of there to hear him preach. It's usually him, I think, right? We're all there to to engage with his celebrity and we get like some reflected glow off of that experience. Yeah, it's interesting that Hillsong, New York— at some point had a VIP section mm -hmm. <laughs> designated specifically for people like Justin Bieber, Selena Gomez. Gosh, if one of the Kardashians showed up, yeah. they would be escorted to this section toward the front of the church and be able to interact with Carl Lentz directly after the service in the green room. Mm -hmm. So in that formula, you see a prioritization of celebrities over kind of normie Christians. And then you also have a real pastoral deficit when you think about people actually needing care from a spiritual leader. Very few people at Hillsong, New York, would have even been able to have a conversation with Carl Lentz. Mm -hmm. He was seen as providing certain goods <laughs> from afar, but not really knowable. And I think that's by design, that celebrity has a way of distancing the person or the persona and the following and the fans. And the distance is key to the way that celebrity works. We will talk a little bit about that in a moment and its pitfalls, but there is this other type of celebrity that I think is also very interesting, which is like people who are famous, but then 
became more famous or Christian famous is sometimes a term I've used. One example of this that seems to recur every five years is Shia LaBeouf, who is a I think a very talented actor and also a very troubled man. And he started as a child actor and then he's done all these roles and really been celebrated for his work. But also every few years, some news story comes out where he talks about how he's converted or he's become a Christian or he's become a convert. And I've always thought these stories were really funny because suddenly they'll pop up in Christian media and people will be like super excited about Shia because he's one of us. And that's what I hear. Like if he, a famous actor, can be a Christian, then like it's cool and fine that I am too. And in your book, someone you mention is Bob Dylan as sort of a prototype of this, which I think is just fascinating and completely correct. So just remind us like what happened in the story of Bob Dylan that matches this pattern that we see recurring. So of course, Bob Dylan started his career in New York as a protest folk singer. Then in the mid to late 70s, he would say that he had this powerful conversion experience at a Calvary Chapel church in California. And that would begin what we now understand as his born-again years or his born-again era, which I think is telling in and of itself that this kind of tracks with a certain artistic turn for him. Mm -hmm. Arguably, there was good Bob Dylan music that was produced during this time. There was also not great Bob Dylan music produced during this time. He became really interested in the end times or Armageddon talk, which was very much in the ether in the 70s and 80s. Understandably, his longtime fans were not really into the Christian content, and they certainly weren't really into him proselytizing at his concerts. But evangelical Christians learning that Bob Dylan had claimed to have this born-again experience and was now singing about Jesus and his song to millions in crowds, this was really exciting for evangelical Christians to see wow, God got one of the big ones that lended legitimacy to their faith in having one of the most famous musicians of the last 50 years all of a sudden singing about Jesus and really seeing him as being able to do more for Christianity than they could because he had access to other celebrities or to political leaders or had this kind of cultural power, he could bring Christianity into those echelons of power and change people in the process. This was the dream. Whether that happened, that was the fantasy that I think celebrity conversions appeal to, this narrative that they can do more for us than we could do ourselves in our daily lives. Right, that we're almost able to borrow on what they bring to the table. So one thing that I hear in both of these stories, the the Bob Dylans and the Carl Lentzes and everybody kind of in between, is that they require the sense of embattlement in order to function, that there is something perhaps particular to Christian celebrity that requires you to believe that you are rejected or a pariah in the mainstream culture mm -hmm. in order to be excited about the celebrity who is either going to drag people in from the mainstream culture or is going to give legitimacy to you. Is that a right assessment? Yes. I think embattlement is core to 
a white evangelical American imagination and self-identity, at least for the last 40 or 50 years. That's certainly something that I inherited Mm. as a teenager or heard a lot about. In my own sense of identity as a young teenager, it wasn't just, I am a Christian. It was, I am a Christian who is going to be bullied by (laughs) non-Christians that, or I'm going to have to defend my faith when I go off to college. Should I go off to a public college, public university, I will be marginalized and castigated. I also have thought a lot about this. And at one point, I wrote about what happened after Columbine, where actually several of the girls who were murdered there were turned into kind of posthumous celebrities Mm -hmm. and used to create that embattlement feeling that you were going to have not just the ridicule of your college professors, but also potentially a school shooter is going to come in and ask you if you believe in God. And if you say yes, they'll shoot you. And that was the story we were fed. And there were conferences and Michael W. Smith recorded songs and it was a whole cottage industry And of course, it turns out the story isn't quite accurate, but it was very useful in creating this sort of platform to be used to kind of create that feeling. Yeah, persecution. I remember being given this book about Cassie Bernal, one of the women killed at Columbine, and it alleged to tell her story of coming to faith and then being asked if she believed in God, and she said yes and was killed, according to this account. And as a young teenage woman in public school, that story, that idea that I might have to one day give an account and face what essentially Christians understand to be martyrdom, right, was both scary, but also called me to a kind of zeal that was very useful for the people teaching us and shaping us, the adults kind of forming us in the faith And I latched onto that. I think a lot of our peers did, too. Mm -hmm. So whether the martyrdom account of Cassie was true, and I don't think it was in the way that it was presented, it was certainly, as you said, Alyssa, very useful. Yeah, you know, and it did also, crucially, I think, sell a lot of books and conference tickets, which was really a part of the fabric of our lives. Mm -hmm. This is all kind of woven into evangelicalism as it was formed in America, white evangelicalism, we could say, right? You write a little bit about Billy Graham, and he has one of the most famous celebrities. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about Billy Graham and how some of the markers of evangelical or Christian celebrity pop up in his story, which includes things like gaining power, and I would say like proximity to power, revenue, persona, and also this harnessing of mass media. Yeah, well, I think of Billy Graham as the person who defines American evangelicalism more so than any church denomination network. Historian once quipped that if you want to know if you're an evangelical, ask if you like Billy Graham. If you like Billy Graham, you're an evangelical. (laughs) So the fact that this one person who started out very young, preaching, evangelizing, holding crusades, drawing masses of people, often through spectacle. If what it means to be an evangelical is your feelings for this person that tells you kind of the outsize impact that someone like Graham had, 
I think of Billy Graham as a very pragmatic and savvy person. Hmm. He very early on adopted the tools of mass media to project an image of himself, to draw crowds to these evangelistic events. He, for decades, had a very popular radio show. Millions of Americans are tuning in every week to hear Billy Graham preach and evangelize. First of all, I want us to see what is a Christian. What is a follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, there are many people that have an idea that if you're born in a Christian country that you're a Christian. Many people have an idea if you have Christian parents, you're automatically a Christian. But the Bible says you cannot inherit Christianity. There is nothing that you can do to automatically make yourself acceptable to the kingdom of God. He later would have his crusades televised all over the world. He once bragged that because of these tools of mass media, he could reach more people for the gospel than Jesus, which is a very bold thing to say, but I suppose is numerically true, (laughs) but very pragmatic and even progressive in his understanding of mass media. We have these tools that previous generations could never have dreamed of. Why not use them if it means, you know, one more person hears the gospel? Hmm. Graham would claim to be America's pastor. He understood himself as having a kind of national pastoral role. He formed relationships with all of the U.S. presidents from Harry Truman to Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. That was something that later in life, I think he would come to regret in certain instances, most famously in his relationship with Richard Nixon where Graham was implicated in ethical and moral scandals of the Nixon administration. I think Graham would say he was burned by that experience and that proximity to very unhealthy political power. He was a very likable man, charismatic. He was attractive. You know, growing up, seeing Graham crusades on television, I didn't think, wow, he's he's hot. <laughs> but I guess... <laughs> he was old by the time we were there. But <laughs> yeah, but yeah, younger pictures of him, you're like, oh, yeah, I can see it. He could have been a Hollywood star, I think, if he wanted to be. Yeah, he had the jawline that is favorable in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. He had a kind of natural charisma that could work very well in Hollywood and politics, and he just happened to be using it in the realm of spiritual power. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, those more base appeals are very much present in the world of Christian celebrity. Mm -hmm. And Christians themselves know better than to say, I like listening to this person talk because they're great to look at. (laughs) But (laughs) all of the natural dynamics of attraction and personal appeal were very much at play for Graham. Yes. And I think the mass media part is important here to emphasize because evangelicals have, in fact, always kind of been on the forefront of adopting the tools of mass media. First, it was tent meetings and riders, you know, who kind of go from town to town and gather huge crowds to hear them preach. But then we have radio, we have television, which of course is still a very popular way that a lot of people meet Christian celebrities. We could think of like Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Podcasts, which have become a tool for stardom, for pastors in particular, people who maybe 
just tune in to listen to the sermon that someone delivered on Sunday without being even a part of the congregation or even being particularly interested in being part of the congregation. I can tell an anecdote about that related to Matt Chandler. Go for it. So this receiving of spiritual content from Christian celebrities from afar came up recently in a story involving a famous pastor in Texas, Matt Chandler, founding pastor of the Village Church. It claims to have about 4,000 members across its various sites. Several months ago, he was accused of having an inappropriate relationship with a woman in the church. The details of what exactly happened have been very intentionally vague, but he has since returned to the pulpit and says, you know, he's been changed and there's a redemption story. And what I noticed in Christian's response to his return to public ministry was how many people said, I don't attend your church. I listen to your sermons online every week. I listen to your podcast, and I'm so glad to have you back. Mm. Well, those are precisely the people who would have the least to lose by a potentially unhealthy spiritual leader returning to a place of prominence. But as long as you think of this celebrity figure as the purveyor of spiritual content, you're not really that interested in their character, maturity, groundedness, how they treat people in their actual church, because as long as they're providing that felt need for you from afar, you're glad to have them back. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, celebrity church leaders have huge followings. They give talks to packed stadiums, and they inspire Christians around the globe. So, why is this a problem? Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. So we've talked a lot about the markers of celebrity and some of the ways that this has rippled across the culture, both broadly and also very much within religious contexts. And for some people, this doesn't really obviously present a problem, right? You're like, well, you know what? That's the way the world is. I like the things I like. I like the stuff this guy makes, and I just think he's great, and 
what's wrong with that. I feel like I've had a lot of spiritual nourishment or gotten a lot from this person, so no harm, no foul. There are people who attribute major changes in their life, for instance, to having attended a Billy Graham crusade. I went to a Billy Graham crusade actually when I was five, and I have very clear memories of it. And I don't know that it really made any change in my life because I was five, but I know there are a lot of people who say, you know, I was an alcoholic and I was abusive to my family and I really had a spiritual experience, right? So we, we have to acknowledge that there's a lot that can be positive for people, or at least that they can judge as positive. But I think a question that comes up is, why is this actually a problem? <laughs> why is our celebrity culture a problem broadly and also within religious contexts? And we don't just have to talk about evangelicals, but certainly that's very much part of evangelical culture, although I'm sure it exists in many other religious or spiritual contexts. So I just want to ask you about a few of those. And the first one I wanted to ask you about was the idea of parasocial relationships that we develop and what that does for us or to us and what that does for the celebrity with whom we've created that relationship. Well, I think of parasocial relationships as maybe positively being able to help us understand ourselves and what our values are by our perceived relationship to this person from afar. If you're like me, Alyssa, you heard a lot about parasocial relationships as multiple details in the personal life of John Mulaney came to light yes. over the last year, 18 months. Not a Christian celebrity, but certainly one that a lot of us hold very dear. Yes. <laughs> and the level of extreme personal feeling Related to this news unfolding in the life of a person none of us actually know or can know because of the distance of celebrity struck many of us as unhealthy, undue. I know for Mulaney, the fact that he has talked very openly about his struggles with addiction and recovery, there's a sense that if he can go through this, mm -hmm. even with all of his fame and power and money, and if he can go through this and come out on the other side healthier and better, maybe I can too. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that is inappropriate per se. It's when it crosses over into an extreme attachment that is ultimately based in a fantasy of relationship or intimacy that is inherently one-sided. <laughs> right. You and I are not friends with John Mulaney. Sadly. Unfortunately. And when we hear that, you know, in this case, his addiction struggles were one thing, and then also he split from his wife, and a lot of people felt very personally wounded by this news to the point where they're crying, and they're... That's kind of what was happening. And for us, that's bad, and it's also bad for him, ultimately, right? Yeah. I'm borrowing this from a Christian celebrity in her own right who I interviewed this summer. Her name is Beth Moore. Imagine a Bible teacher with big blonde Texan hair. She says, celebrity isn't thrivable. It's only survivable. And she's reflecting on this as someone who has a, a fair amount of celebrity, at least in the church. And just a sense that even as more people are reading about you on social media and following you and claim to be fans and have this apparently very intense attachment to you, there's also the experience of profound loneliness and isolation. 
Uh, people are so interested in the persona of me. They're not really interested in the person of me who has to live as a normal human, like off the screen and off the stage most of my life. And are there people in that place that are actually interested in me as me apart from what I can produce for them or what I can give them in my celebrity role? Mm. Okay, so I think this is a really important thing to dwell on is that this celebrity creates distance and loneliness for the celebrity, right, in ways that can be quite harmful. And that's maybe an extreme relationship, but this happens across celebrity, right? Yeah, and it's true when we are fans as well as when we are haters, <laughs> to use common parlance. When I think about the capricious nature of fandom and the fact that many of us on one day can sing the praises of a particular figure and then they do something or say something that is offensive to us or that we just don't like and we turn against them. And I think fandom gives and takes very quickly. And just on the receiving end of that, remembering that this is an actual person. <laughs> like, this is a person who has to try to go about their daily life. And, you know, just anecdotally, many celebrities find that trying to exist as a normal person or function as a normal person in the world is not sustainable. And so there's actually a kind of a forced isolation. Mm. I can only be in my <laughs> mansion to feel safe, or I need bodyguards, or I can't go out and get a cup of coffee like everybody else. And I really want to. Mm -hmm. I really want to enjoy the anonymity that most of us have that actually allow us to operate in the world in proximate ways, where people are actually interested in getting to know us as people. I mean, it's axiomatic, just to note, the destructive effects of celebrity on celebrities and all the various coping mechanisms that celebrities turn to to try to deal with the isolation and pain that comes from that status. I thought it was interesting in your book, you talked about how Justin Bieber, who we could just talk about him, I think, for an hour with reference to this topic specifically, but you said he's made a rule that he doesn't take selfies with fans, essentially because he felt like nobody wanted to talk to him anymore. They just wanted an image of him of their own, which I think is really interesting. I, I also think we can talk about things like power and the way that predators are often protected just generally when they're celebrities. I, I think, for instance, of someone like Harvey Weinstein, who was a celebrity of a kind and was protected for literally decades by his community. But then we also reach some extra problems, I think, when we're talking about celebrity inside a spiritual context. Mm-hmm. There's added baggage that comes with the spiritual element that isn't maybe there if we're just talking about people who love Taylor Swift or something like that. So what are some of those special considerations that you've found in thinking about this? When you are a spiritual celebrity, your fans or your community put you on a godlike plane. They see you as having particular access to the divine in ways that many spiritual communities, people in those communities crave. Mm -hmm. They want a touch point to the sacred. They want to be with a leader who is going to lead them toward enlightenment or goodness or in the church toward Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so if you are a celebrity leader in that context and you also have predatory instincts, you, of course, are going to use that perception to prey on vulnerable people because you are seen as unquestionably good Mm -hmm. or actually having divine status yourself in many of these communities. Mm -hmm. And so sadly, hearing about stories of abuse in spiritual communities, you will hear survivors and their friends and family say, I thought that our pastor was God. And I I couldn't distinguish between the voice of God and the voice of our pastor. And when those two became merged, that led to all sorts of unhealth. Mm -hmm. From a Christian perspective, no one can claim that kind of spiritual power over others. And ideally, Christian leaders would be people who are the first to humble themselves, the first to say, I am a person, and so I have flaws and pitfalls and temptations just like everybody else, Mm -hmm. and I'm not here to lord my power over others. I'm here to pour it out for the sake of others. I actually wanted to ask you about a particular facet that we need to touch on here for celebrities with religious or spiritual power is this phenomenon of the megachurch. You know, you and I are recording this episode a couple weeks before Christmas, which is actually typically when people who don't normally go to church but are Christian and celebrate Christmas might show up to their local church. And many churches, but especially large ones, expend an enormous amount of effort and money and like rehearsal time and production to getting people in the door and giving them a really good show. I think we both know that one of the reasons that's always talked about is that we want them to come back, right? Mm -hmm. But also it's, you know, those shows can be wild. There was a video that surfaced on TikTok recently of people in a mega church auditorium and they were like, they were strapped to the ceiling and they were flying back and forth in the ceiling. And some people were like, wow, that's, I've never seen anything like that. And a lot of people were like, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) We've seen this before. How does this all come out in the megachurch context, and what sort of is the special consideration for the way celebrity is treated in the megachurch? And for our purposes, I think we can say that's a that's a congregation of like nearing a thousand to sometimes many, many, many thousands. Mm-hmm. The megachurch is a quintessentially American understanding of church. <laughs> it is designed, even in its building the fact that we're talking about an auditorium and not a sanctuary, to having a coffee house in the lobby, to having all sorts of outreach events. You know, megachurch precisely wants to attract people by not feeling and looking like a church. And core to the megachurch phenomenon in the United States has been a centering of a pastor, usually a founding pastor or a lead pastor, as the axis around which the church's life and ministry turns. He often is a visionary and passionate person who's always casting an image of what the church could be and do in the future. There's a positivity. You're not likely to hear a lot about confession of personal sin in a megachurch context because that's seen as being 
off-putting. Mm-hmm. You go to a mega church service to feel uplifted and inspired and very entertained <laughs> at the end of the day. Because so many mega churches are non-denominational, there's very little oversight of structure or accountability for the top leaders. It's kind of whatever the lead pastor says goes. Mm -hmm. And his sermon is often the centerpiece of the worship experience. Every church has a liturgy or a way of structuring its time together, including megachurches, even though they would never say, you know, we have a liturgy. The liturgy goes something like, three worship songs, 30-minute sermon that's uplifting and powerful and memorable and has just like perfectly timed jokes and maybe a few pop culture references. Often football references. (laughs) Yes, I shuddered. Your (laughs) listeners are not going to be able to see that, but (laughs) they love their sports metaphors. (laughs) Yes, they do. (laughs) Followed by announcements, followed by one final uplifting song. Hmm. Mega churches really understand the sermon and their pastor's oratory skills to be crucial to their sense of identity and also their growth and success. Mm. And so, quite negatively, you have situations where pastors with unhealthy leadership patterns or you know predatory instincts are allowed to keep preaching and leading because the church is just too afraid to have them step down or leave the spotlight because if they go, isn't our church going to lose members, to decrease in size, to not draw as many crowds? And of course, all of this is thinking of growth and numerical growth as the point, you know? Yeah. Mega churches want to be impressive in their size. That's <laughs> that's in the name, right? Yeah. And of course, it maybe goes without saying, but growth means income as well for the church. And this is obviously important to keep the lights on, but also you can't have smoke machines or people hang gliding across your sanctuary roof if you don't have a lot of income coming in. But I do think that all of that brings me to a question, I guess, that I think is interesting both inside religious context and outside of it. What do you see as ways forward? Like, are we hopelessly mired in celebrity culture forever and we're just, this is what it is now? Or are there ways that evangelicals can move away from this? Mm -hmm. What are some ways forward that could create a healthier context for the celebrity and also for the people who are kind of brought into their fandom? Well, to start, I truthfully don't have a lot of hope Mm -hmm. that our fixation on celebrity, both outside and inside the church, is going to change anytime soon. Social media have added jet fuel to these dynamics, have allowed many of us to become celebrities just by using these tools particularly well without having to have accomplished anything particularly important unless you consider like a really good TikTok dance an accomplishment. I mean, I can't do it, so. (laughs) I can't do that either. (laughs) My hunch is that things will get worse before they get better if our time spent consuming media content and engaging celebrities' lives and stories is any indication. In the church, at least, I am hopeful that 
small communities would start to just quietly lean into the invitation to reinvest in flesh and blood relationship. Mm. I think that's what we all need as embodied humans. I think that's what we all actually desire. And to some extent, we all sense that there's something off about how we connect with people or people's personas or brands via media compared with how we connect with people in person. And I just think we're hungry for that in-person connection. And so my hope is that, at least in the church, there would be a commitment in many spiritual communities to say, we don't want a celebrity pastor. We don't want to think about spiritual formation as consuming inspirational content. Mm. We don't need to fixate or prop up a celebrity figure who's going to fight the big, bad, secular folks out there. We are content to figure out what it means to be a person of faith with each other, you know, off the screen and off the stage, believing that that kind of life is an invitation to a life of flourishing and the kind of true intimacy we all want. I know that both of us uh, now do attend church, but we attend churches that work a little differently from the churches maybe that we had experienced as young people. But certainly the temptation to get really into a celebrity is still there, a Christian celebrity, someone who's going to provide me with guidance in my life, who I have no connection to at all. How do you navigate not creating a parasocial relationship or an over-reverential attitude towards someone like that in your own life? Have you figured out some ways to not do that? Well, perhaps like you, I intentionally attend a church that's rather boring. Yes, <laughs> that has been a key. <laughs> there are definitely no smoke machines at my church, although sometimes there's smoke, but that's often from the incense. <laughs> my entire adult life, I've wanted to be in a church context that is not particularly entertaining, that is historically grounded, where the sermon is not the main event. I mean, truthfully, I appreciate many things about the pastor at this particular church, but I would not describe him as an oratory master. Sometimes it's great, and sometimes it's boring, and sometimes I remember about 20% of it. Yep. But the way that the church is structured is to even say, the sermon is not the point. It's not the main event, and so this person is also not the main event. Mm -hmm. He may be providing care and leadership and spiritual help in some way, but he is also available for conversation at coffee hour where he tells weird anecdotes. <laughs> he is like a person among us, right? Mm -hmm. And I think crucially in all the churches that I've been in in my adult life, the pastor was accessible. Mm -hmm. He was not seeking a kind of distance from the people in the community. He wanted to be known. He wanted to be available for conversation. We saw his gifting as well as his flaws. He's really good at pastoral care and not great at administrative work. <laughs> and like, because of that proximity, there was decreased temptation to ascribe to this person superhuman or super spiritual qualities. Mm-hmm. Well, Caitlin, I think that this conversation really is important for us to keep having as a culture. 
whether or not we are church people. (laughs) You know, I also think about all these surveys that show that people who maybe have disassociated themselves with an organized church are finding community and spiritual meaning in other places. And it's easy to understand how some of the same structures would replicate themselves. So I'm really grateful that you're out there talking about it and that there's also a lot we can glean from it no matter what our context is. And thank you for coming and talking to us about it. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drostovska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayareaatvox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, give it a tweet, or tell your local youth group that they should give it a listen. I'm Alyssa Wilkinson. I write about culture on vox.com. Feel free to check me out there, and you'll be back hearing Sean Illing's voice in your ears on Monday. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.